Live from the Old Church Concert Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. By the time the manila envelope arrived, I wasn't sure whether I was more scared or excited to open it. I'd been hoping that it would have some answers for me, but now that it was here, I was afraid I was going to kick up a firestorm in the process. The envelope was from the Arizona State Mental Hospital, where my mother spent time when I was a young child in the summer of 1970. She'd been dead for about 10 years at this point, and no one that was alive either would or could answer my questions. So three years ago, I finally got up the courage to call the state hospital to see what I could find out. The first page of the report was entitled, Restoration to Competency. I thought that was an interesting choice of term. It listed two reasons for my mother's involuntary committal. Religiously preoccupied and loss of all interest in housekeeping. <laughs> I was flabbergasted too. Though both of these are true, I could hardly believe that they were reasons the court would give my father permission to have her removed from the family. You see, my mother was a nun before she got married, and truly she was a nun in her heart to their dying day. She even tried to go back to the convent after us kids were grown and gone, but that didn't work out. When she left the convent originally, the priest told her the next best thing she could do for God was to have lots of kids. So she dutifully had 11 of us in 14 years. I'm number seven. Most of my early memories of my mother are her doing nun-like things. We would drive all over town to the poorest parts of the city. She would bring food and clothes, sometimes our clothes. And she would teach catechism, and she would try to get them to go to mass with us. Going to mass was a daily occurrence for us at least once a day. And when we were driving around, if we happened to pass by another Catholic church, we would stop in for what she called a pop-in visit to say hi to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. <laughs> when we were in the car driving around, she would bribe us with McDonald's sometimes if we would say the rosary again and again. As a young child, I didn't know what saying the rosary had to do with getting poor souls out of purgatory, but I didn't even know what purgatory was, but I knew if I mumbled the words that it would get me a Big Mac and fries. And I didn't even have to share it with my older siblings because they were in school. As far as the loss all interest in housekeeping, who could keep up with housekeeping with 11 kids, even under the best of circumstances? And certainly ours weren't the best of circumstances. As you can imagine with 11 kids, laundry in our house consisted of this massive pile of dirty clothes and a smaller pile of clean clothes. And we were left to fend for ourselves to find something to wear. Sometimes I would pick things out of the dirty clothes pile. The ironic thing is that my father was guilty of both of these things too. Not only did he have zero interest in housekeeping, he also didn't do much to help her with the housekeeping. Matter of fact, in the report, he, one of the accusations that he made against her was that she had the audacity to hire teenage kids in the neighborhood to help her out. Not only did he not help, but he made matters worse because he put undue stress on her. When my mother was pregnant with me, the seventh of the 11, 
My dad decided to quit his job with an architectural firm in order to pursue his own passions, which consisted primarily of designing churches for the Catholic Church and developing low-cost housing for the poor. And we became one of the poor in the process. My mother told me many years later that when my dad quit his job, he might as well have cut her head off. I was seven years old when the paddy wagon pulled up in front of our house and the two men in white coats dragged her out of the house with her arms tied behind her back. She was kicking and screaming and asking for help. I was standing, along with my siblings standing around, I was on the sidewalk watching in horror, powerless and afraid. I wish I could say things got better for us, but they got worse before they got better because two years after that time, our house burnt down in the middle of the night. We almost all died, and we lost everything. And probably because my dad had quit his job, we didn't have good insurance, so we were scattered to the four winds with family and friends. The firemen told my parents that in 10 more minutes, we would have been 13 corpses. Though we survived, there was a lot of death that night in the fire because it turned out to be the last night that we would all spend under the same roof. Because as we moved in, my father moved out, and he started the proceedings to divorce my mom. Because of her time in the state hospital, he was able to convince the court to give him full custody, and my mom became essentially homeless. That made visitations interesting with us kids because we were like a band of gypsies going from place to place. Sometimes we would stay with an aunt and uncle, sometimes with a friend. That first summer, when she had an extended visitation, we ended up going up to Oak Creek Canyon in beautiful northern Arizona. And we moved from campground to campground as our time was up. And because my mom was forever a nun, we would pick up hitchhikers and stray people and other homeless along the way because in my mom's playbook, there was always room for one more. That following summer, when we got close to her visitation time, she pulled me out of school one day, and she, she had tears in her eyes, and she said, your dad is going to send you to Mexico for the summer to get you away from me. And sure enough, that the beginning of the summer, my dad packs up 10 of us 11 kids, drives us to Nogales, and puts us on a bus for two and a half days, deep into the heart of Mexico. My oldest brother, Michael, is 19 years old. My youngest sisters are twins, they're five, and one of the twins, Judy, has Down syndrome. Michael's in charge of all of us nine kids on a bus for two and a half days to Cuernavaca. This is my dad's plan to get us away from our crazy mother. So we go down where we're supposed to stay in this house that belongs to his friend, Father Wasson. But we get there when we find out the house isn't available to us. So we end up staying in an orphanage that Father Wasson runs. It was scary and it was disorienting to be in a Mexican orphanage. But it was strangely a bonding experience for us siblings. I actually have some pretty vivid and some fond memories of that time. I remember that first night in the dining hall when, in the chicken soup, I had this chicken claw in my soup, and I didn't know what to do with it. 
we tried to pass it around to the sisters and Judy ended up with it. She didn't have to answer to the madres. <laughs> the smell of pine saw will forever remind me of Mexico because the madres would wipe down the hallways with it every day. And I really enjoyed actually going down to the tortilleria when I got to go with the girls and we would get these massive stacks of corn tortillas hot off the press. And the girls taught me how to roll them between my fingers and we got to eat some on the way home. I had my first and last cigarette in Mexico because at night when the madres would turn out the lights in the dormitorio, you would see this red glow of the cigarette being passed around. And I remember Yolanda convinced me to try one, but I didn't like it very much because I'd had enough smoke in my lungs for one lifetime. That next year, after Mexico, I got sick. I got so sick that I missed a whole month of school. My dad took me to the doctor again and again, and they did all these tests, but they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I remember the doctor asking me, does it hurt here? Yes. Does it hurt here? Yes. Does it hurt here? Yes. I just said yes to everything, because it hurt. But I didn't have the words to tell him that it hurt here in my heart. But when I look back, I think, it shouldn't have taken a rocket scientist to figure that out. A 10-minute family history would tell you that I was getting ripped apart in this soul. That next summer, my mother was able to get together the resources to take my dad back to court, and she was able to get custody of the kids that were left at home at that point. But within about a year and a half of that time, my dad pulled me aside one day, armed with this file folder of letters from doctors and lawyers and such. His aim was to prove to me that my mother was insane. And he gave me a Sophie's choice, choose him or choose my mom. He made it pretty clear that if I chose my mom, I was also choosing crazy, insinuating that I too would be crazy. It's taken me a lot of years to come to understand the reasons why I was so powerless against my father that day with that ultimatum. But in choosing to go live with my father, I bought into his story that he was the hero and that my mother was crazy. When I was a freshman in high school, <clears throat> my dad suggested this idea for me to become an exchange student. At first, I thought he was trying to get rid of me again. <laughs> but then this idea took hold of me, and it kind of became my escape plan. And so my sophomore year, I worked like crazy after school to earn enough money for the program. And at the beginning of my, the summer of my junior year, I took off for Sweden. To say that that year was transformative to me would be a massive understatement. Scientists talk about these two opposing forces in life of chaos and order, and Sweden proved to be this sanctuary of order for my chaotic soul. I had a room to myself for the first time in my life. At the night of the fire, there were five of us girls living in one bedroom because the boys outnumbered us by one, so they got two bedrooms. It was a big bedroom that was clean and neat, and there was this massive window that looked out over the garden with this gazebo. And, and then there was this amazing thing that would happen at night. My Swedish mama would stand at the bottom of the stairs and she would say, Klar, which means the food is ready. And we would just go downstairs and there would be this table full of food. And I didn't even have to eat fast to get seconds. It was amazing. <laughs> 
And then I would watch what the girls would do, and they just would say, tack from Alton, and then they would put their plates up, which means thanks for the food, and put their plates up, and then we'd go be kids. <laughs> it was like this amazing thing. And then there was this miracle that happened around laundry in, Mex in Sweden. My Swedish mama would come and ask me for my dirty clothes, and then, like in two days, they would show up at my foot of my bed, and they were all neat and clean and folded. It was like, wow, never seen that before. <laughs> About three months into my stay in, in Sweden, there was a special service at their church this one night. Some kind of a music group was coming through or something like that. I couldn't speak the language yet, so I didn't know what was going on. But there was this moment where it was like the planets lined up inside my soul. And it was like I felt this incredible sense of love and belonging. And the world made sense for the first time, probably since the night that my mother was taken away. I felt connected to all things. And I felt this sense of like, I wanted people to know that. And my first thought was, I need to be a nun. <laughs> because that's what you do, <laughs> right? But I got over that really fast. <laughs> Much to my great aunt's chagrin that I wrote a letter to and said, hey, I think I need to be a nun. And then I was like, nope, never mind, I didn't mean that. <laughs> but that night, something happened to me that put me on a path of healing that started to heal the schisms in my soul. Much later, when my boys were young, I had a conversation with my father about the trip to Mexico. And he admitted, almost with pride, that yes, he had sent us down there to get us away from our mom. And he told me about these letters that she wrote, and he, and he, and he said that she just complained about how much she missed us and how she never once said anything about appreciating that these adventures that we were having in Mexico. He said this as if it was like some evidence that she was crazy or something. And I looked at him and I said, Dad, it's not crazy for a mom to miss her kids, especially when they get taken away from her. But it is crazy to put 10 kids on a bus down to Mexico for two and a half days unsupervised and then let them live in an orphanage for the whole summer. But that didn't faze him. You never could get past my dad's grandiose sense of himself. The report was multi-pages, and it was mostly typewritten from the doctors and the court and whatnot. But the last line of the report was a handwritten note from the doctor. And it said there are 11 kids dependent on two sick adults. When I was a child, I'd bought into my father's narrative that he was the hero and that my mother was the crazy one. It took me a lot of years to reclaim the beautiful parts of my mother and to accept the crazy parts of my father. Neither of my parents were able to tame their demons in this lifetime, and both of them wreaked havoc in their own ways because of it. I've come to believe that we're all full of crap and that we're all full of glory. And it took me a lot of years to find the glory in each of them and to forgive them for their crap. I came to believe that I had to find my own crazy and accept it in order to stay out of crazy. And I've come to believe that there's one job that I need to do in life, and that's to learn to love and accept myself and others, warts and all.